Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. This morning we are going to continue in our series on the names of God. And so we've been going through this series and we looked at the first week, the name of God that is Elohim, that is Creator God. The second week we looked at Holy God, how God is holy in his grace and in his justice. Um, After that, we looked at Yahweh, the God that is, the God that kind of was and is and is to come, this God that is consistent throughout all time. And then we took a break for Freedom Sunday, and then this week we are going to be diving into the name. Um, El Roy is the name. So it's E-L-R-O-I, kind of E-L is the first part, R-O-I is the second part, and it is The name of this God is the God who sees. I feel like that this cannot come at a more perfect time. Um, As we look at the events of the world, as we reflect on Freedom Sunday, that we have a God who sees. And the hope that that can bring us, especially when we're a place where we might be questioning the idea (laughs) that does God really see? Does God really know? Is God really there. And so this morning I want to dive into this place where this one place, it's really only mentioned one place in the Bible, this name, this El Roy, the God that sees, exists, and it is in Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. So if you guys want to open there, um, that's where we're going to start this morning. And so it starts in the story of Abraham, Sarai, and Hagar. And Abram and Sarai have been promised from God that they would conceive and have a child. And they've been trying for a long time, and no child has come. And so Abram and Sarai, they decide that they're going to take matters kind of into their own hands, and they have this slave from Egypt. Because Abram and Sarai, they traveled around, they'd been in Egypt, and so when they were in Egypt, they acquired some slaves as they moved up to Canaan, and Hagar was one of those slaves. She's one of the female servants of Sarai. And so Sarai is given to Abram to be Abram's wife and to conceive for her to conceive for Sarai a child. And this would not be uncommon in that day for for a woman to give her female slave to her husband for that female slave to conceive and bear a child for that would then be legally and rightfully Sarah's. And so that's what happens here is that they doubt God, they doubt God's promises. And so Hagar goes to Abram, and, uh, and Hagar conceives. And Hagar is going to bear Abram a child. And Sarai has a very difficult time with this. And so and she begins to abuse Hagar. She begins to be incredibly harsh with Hagar because she's jealous in the fact that Hagar is bearing the child that Sarai was promised from God to have. The abuse becomes so severe, in fact, that Hagar decides that it's better for her to leave the care of her master and to escape into the desert and the wilderness. She's at such a place of great despair that she believes that life would be better in the middle of the desert roaming around with nothing than it would be to stay under the oppression of Sarai. And so she escapes, and this is where we meet Sarai, and this is where we meet Hagar, is in the middle of her escape. She's running alone, 
She's isolated, she's been abused, and she's been neglected by God. Or she feels neglected by God. So here, Genesis chapter 16, 7 through 13, this is what it says. It says, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in a desert. It was the spring that was beside the road to Shur. And he said to Hagar, slave of Sarai, Where have you come from, and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she said. And then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel of the Lord added, And I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. And the angel of the Lord said to her, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. And you shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He'll be like a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all of his brothers. And she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for this day. And God, we thank you for the story of Hagar, and we thank you that you are the God who sees. We thank you that you do see us and that you do encourage us, and that you give us courage to go face things that we would much rather not go back and face. God, I thank you that you give us the courage and the strength to face into trial and to lean into it and to trust that you are good and that you are going to sustain us through it. God, we thank you that you are holy in your goodness and in your power. And God, we trust you that you would give us peace that's beyond our understanding. We walk in faith with you. God, give us this faith this morning. God, help us in our unbelief. In your name we pray. Amen. So when we look at this story, it begins with Hagar. And Hagar is familiar with the God of Abraham and Sarah. She knows who this God is. She knows how she got to where she is. The reality, though, is that she does not feel known by this God, nor does she feel like she really knows this God. There is no relationship between Hagar and this kind of foreign God that is of her masters, Abraham and Sarah. And so she's feeling neglected. She's feeling alone. She's feeling isolated, and she's worn out, and she's just sitting at the swell in the middle of the desert. It sounds like another story that we know of a woman who's tired, and thirsty at a well that Jesus comes and invites, and he speaks, and he sees her. He sees her sin. He sees her five husbands, and he invites her to drink living water. Now, a lot of commentators in this passage would say that this angel of the Lord is kind of the pre-incarnate Christ, that Hagar actually meets Jesus through this angel, that Jesus is there pre-incarnation, and that (laughs) Jesus is speaking to her in this place of isolation, in this place of thirst and hurt and oppression, God is there through the Son. But it's here in this trouble that she encounters this God of Abraham and Sarah in an incredibly profound way. And there are kind of three different things that I see how God interacts with Sarah, with Hagar, and how Hagar interacts with God that we can take away into our lives this morning. And the first is that He sees her, and he sees where she's going. He begins with this question of, where are you going? He sees that she is running away, and he's like, where have you come from, and where are you going? 
And she replies back, well, I'm running away from my mistress. And then the thing is, is that God does this kind of profound and very difficult thing when we're reading the story. And he says, you know what, Hagar, I want you to go back. I want you to go back to, to Sarah. And when I'm reading that story, I'm like, what? <laughs> like, this is the God of freedom. This is the God that hates oppression. This is the God who, like, makes things new. And here he's telling Hagar, who's fleeing oppression, you'd think that he would be like this God that says, you know what, I'm going to create a new thing for you, and I'm going to set you free, and things are going to be great. But he says, no, instead, go back and submit to her. I think that there's a couple reasons why God might be doing this. And I would say that it's purely speculative. I don't know. I don't understand the wisdom of God. But one of the things is that she's alone and she's in the desert and she has no provision. Egypt is a long ways away. If she were to get to Egypt and meet her family somehow by some chance or miracle, it's hard to say if they would have any provision for her as well. She's pregnant. The journey is going to be difficult and hard. She probably escaped in the night as not to be caught. And so she probably was unable to gather a bunch of supplies, nor would she be able to carry many supplies with her as she carries her child. And so God knows that by sending her back, this child will be cared for, this child will be delivered, because at the end of the day, Sarah still wants this child. She's not going to abuse her to the point to where this child doesn't become a thing. Again, this is all pure speculation, but I believe that this is kind of God's good intent by sending her back. Now, God does not at one point ever condone the violence that has been given to Hagar. In fact, he says, I have heard of your misery. God knows the oppression that Hagar has faced. And he says, I know what I'm sending you back to, and I don't condone it. But instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you courage to go back and face this trial. And the ways that he encourages her to go back and to face this trial is by seeing her. He affirms to her that she's pregnant. Now, of course, at this point, she knows that she's pregnant, but he's like, I know that you're pregnant. I can see that. And I know that inside of you that you have a son. Now, at this point, you don't know. You don't know if there's a son or a daughter inside of Hagar. You just know that she's pregnant. But God affirms, I see inside of you that there's a son, and that son's name is going to be Ishmael. And that's what you're going to call it. And guess what? His descendants are going to be great so great that you are going to be unable to count them. This is very similar to the promise that was given to Abraham, that Abraham's descendants were going to be so great that they would be unable to be counted. And in many ways, the son that she carries is a son of Abraham. And so it's with that, with knowing that God is with her, knowing that God sees her, even in the middle of her trial, that she has strength and she has courage to turn back. And it's through being seen and through being heard that she kind of gives this unknown God, this God that she has heard about and has never really quite experienced through Abraham and Isaac. She gives this God a new name. And this name is Alroy, the God who sees. She says, you are the God who sees me. And I have now seen the one who sees me. And this is significant. Because at many times, this is what we need. In our times of trial, and our times of suffering, is that we just, we need to be seen. Because in many ways, to be seen is also to be known. 
And I don't know about you, but whenever I'm seen and known, I'm given a courage that I didn't have before to go and do things that I would never dream of doing. Because when someone sees me and someone knows me and they know my trial and they see me, there's a many ways this, this kind of idea that says, I am with you in this. You are no longer alone. You are no longer isolated. We are now in vulnerable, intimate community together. And together, we're going to do some things that you on your own could never have done by yourself. It's like working on a team when everything is moving and grooving, where there's vulnerability, where there's people that acknowledges their strengths and their weaknesses, and they say, you have a strength that covers my weakness, and I have a strength that covers your weakness. Let's come together and do this thing, and there's no insecurity around our weaknesses and our strengths, and we say, yeah, let's do it. It becomes this kind of well-oiled machine. I believe that this is what God is doing with Hagar, is that he's giving her courage to say, hey, I'm with you, and I'm going to come beside you, and I have this promise to you that you're going to have a son, and your line is going to flourish. I don't know about you, but that would give me some encouragement. That would give me some encouragement to go back and to face the thing that I'm about to face, to say, God is with me, God sees me, and God knows me. And this is incredibly profound, and I think that this is what we need in our lives as we look throughout the world. <laughs> and although this is the only reference in the Bible to where God has this name, the God who sees, when we open the Bible, we see that our God is the God of seeing all the time. I mean, if we turn to the New Testament, Jesus comes into the world because God has seen us, and he sees that we are in desperate need of being saved, that we are unable to save ourselves. And so he sees us and he sends us his son. And then when his son is here, he sees all types of things. He sees first his disciple, Nathaniel. And he sees his disciple, Nathaniel, sitting under a tree. And so when he comes to Nathaniel and he says, Nathaniel, I want you to come and follow me. And Nathaniel's like, I don't know about this Jesus guy. And he's like, I saw you sitting under the tree like 10 minutes ago. Nathaniel's like, whoa, you are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. In being seen, Nathaniel was given courage to get up and go and to follow Jesus. Jesus sees the blind and the cripple, and he gives them courage to stand up and to be healed. He sees the hard hearts of the Pharisees, and he challenges them to have courage to step into the light and to step into the truth and to let the evil deeds of darkness to be exposed in their heart. And unfortunately, many of them refuse. But a few come along. A few step out and question Jesus and come to know him. He also sees this woman, like I mentioned, at the well, who's tired, who's thirsty, who's worn out, who doesn't have a husband, who's had five husbands, and the, woman, the man that he's with right now isn't her husband. And he's like, here, I'm here to offer you this living water. Jesus sees her. He sees her sin. He sees her vulnerability. And for many of us, that type of shame would crush us. But instead, that, that being seen, that being known, that being invited into this vulnerable place gives her courage to go and tell the whole town. She goes and says, this man has told me everything that I have ever done. An entire city comes to know Jesus because he's seen this woman, and he knew her. 
We also see Jesus as this God who sees this woman that's caught in adultery, brought out naked before her, caught in the act, people ready to stone her. And Jesus sees her and he looks upon her with grace and with mercy and says, he who has <laughs> never sinned cast the first stone. So in this place, he's the only rightful person to kind of get things started. And he never picks up a stone. And one by one, people start to drop their stones. And he's able to give courage to this woman that he saw. And he says, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. So there's new life and there's new courage where God sees. And then the Holy Spirit comes and the Holy Spirit comes and he sees us as well. He sees not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles of this world. He goes to the Gentile, the Roman guard, Cornelius. And he sends Peter to go after him, who's a Jew. And he sends this vision to Peter for Peter to see Cornelius and to see the food that Cornelius eats that would be a barrier for Peter to be in relationship with him. And he tells Peter, take up this food that you're not supposed to eat and eat it because I'm doing bigger things here. I see this man, Cornelius, and his family, and I'm here to give them courage. I'm here to save them. I am here for the nations. I'm here for all people. And so God gives courage to Peter to go and to also see Cornelius. And the Holy Spirit comes and fills that family. The Holy Spirit also comes and confronts Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, the hardest of hearts. He knocks him out, makes him blind on the road to Damascus. And Paul is given the courage through meeting Jesus, the God who sees him, to return back to Jerusalem as a Christian, as the very people that he was at one point affirming the execution and persecution of. And he goes back to his old people and he's like, hey guys, I've been changed. And the disciples in Jerusalem are like, I don't know, have you really been changed? And, he's, and he kind of proves it to them. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm this new creation. Jesus has seen me and I have known him and I've been transformed and I've been given this courage that I would never have had to return back to Jerusalem as a Christian. And you and I, we've been given the spirit that sees us that resides within us, that lives within us, that intercedes with us with groanings. And I feel like we're in this time where we are praying out, where we are crying out to God as a church, around the culture, around the horrors that we've experienced, kind of as a nation lately, and as a people around the world. And we can trust that the Holy Spirit is groaning and interceding perfectly on our behalf. And the Holy Spirit also sees us and seals us for the day of resurrection so that when Jesus comes back, we would be brought up and resurrected with him in the new creation, in the new heaven, in the new earth. And so because God sees us, we are known. We are seen and we are known and we are not alone in the trials that we face. And this is what we have to hold on to because in many times we are facing a world that looks a lot like Hagar's. I mean, from Houston to Puerto Rico, the hurricane that just made landfall last night, to Las Vegas. The people in our own community that are suffering. I mean, I just want to fill you guys in on some stuff that's happening in our community as a whole. It's public information, but... Um, there's a guy in our recovery community 
last week. Uh, his name is John, and uh, he's been attending DR for a while. And uh, on last Thursday, his daughter went missing, and uh, she was found last weekend um, in Lake Mendota. And uh, she's 27 years old. And so um, you got to believe that John is asking, is, is this God a God who sees? You got to be asking if you're in Puerto Rico, is this a God who God who sees? If you're in Vegas, is this a God who sees? We also have uh, Keith Gilmore um, at a Park Street location. His sister-in-law um, was taken to the hospital and has been diagnosed with some late-form lymphoma. Um, they don't know how late it is. We don't know how severe it is. We just know it's not good. Um, and it was just kind of came out of nowhere. And so, I mean, again, just kind of senseless. Senseless, like, you know, people being lost, people suffering. And I also know that just in this body, like, we all have personal things going on. We are all, all experiencing pain. We all have trials that maybe we're asking the same question, like, Hagar, like, I know about you, God, but, like, do you see me? Do you know me? Because I'm feeling pretty alone and isolated. And just because what your hurt might be feeling is not, like, at the gra- gravity of, like, a hurricane or Las Vegas or the loss of a family member, like, there's, don't discredit that pain. Don't discredit that place of suffering. Don't just say, like, well, actually, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. It's, it's really not that bad. We can't play this comparison game. Our pain is incredibly and uniquely ours. And I think that we are primed as a people to kind of just ask this question, God, where are you? Are you really a God who sees? And to that question, I think that there is a resounding yes. And it comes from this place where Jesus is on the cross. And I know, I know that taking our problems and our pain to the cross has become one of the most cliche things that we can say as Christians. And I get it. But it wasn't until I dove into this place of the cross where I was able to bring my true hurts and pains and sorrows and frustrations to him that I was able to see that our God has seen and experienced every injustice, every senseless loss, every pain and suffering that has ever existed and evil on this world he experiences on the cross. And I just want to lead us through kind of the things that Jesus sees and experiences on the cross so that he can level with us. Because, you know, we kind of need a God who can level with us, who can say, yep, I get it. I understand your pain. I understand your suffering. I understand the injustice that you're walking through right now. We need a God who can come down and level with us. We don't need a God who's up in the highest places and saying, oh, someday it's going to be okay. Someday it's, it's great. I'm going to make all things perfect. You're like, that's great. But right now I'm in the trenches and it hurts and it's frustrating. And so we need a God who's able to enter that place with us. And it's through the cross that our God does that. And so it's on the cross that God experiences senseless loss and innocent loss to horrific violence. Jesus is innocent. And he is kind of inexplicitly executed by the hands of violence that are brought against him. God knows what it is to be stripped naked and to be bound, and to be at the mercy of his perpetrator. 
who is willing to beat him and break him in any way that they see fit. He knows what it is to be fully exposed. Oftentimes, our pictures of the cross and of the crucifix, there's like a nice little towel around Jesus. Like, that's not there. He is on full display. His body beaten, bruised, tattered, and it's horrific. And he sees it, and he knows it. It's through the cross that God knows what it is to receive verbal abuse, unending, even from those that are dying next to him. It's through the cross that God knows what it is to lose a child before it's time. To lose a child before it's time. God knows what it is to lose a child in a senseless, unexplicable way, in an innocent way. It's at the cross that God knows what it feels like to be abandoned, to be isolated, to be alone. It's at the cross that God knows what it feels like to be betrayed by those that are most close to him. To have those that are most close to him turn on him and run away. He knows what that's like. He can meet us there. It's at the cross where he can feel isolated, alone, and exhausted. It's at the cross where Jesus experienced just kind of every form of darkness. I mean, if you can think of the darkness that's been executed in this world, I challenge you to bring it to the cross and see how Jesus has experienced it there also, with us and beside us. But it's also at this cross that it's not all darkness, it's not all pain, it's not all suffering. In the middle of all of that, our God, near his final breaths, breathes out, forgive them for they do not know what they do. In the middle of all of this darkness and in the middle of all of this suffering, he breathes life and forgiveness to his tormentors. He sees them too and he sees the pain that they're going through. He sees the ways that they are suffering like him. And he wants nothing but hope for them and healing and restoration for them. It's at the cross that all of the darkness of this world is absorbed and defeated and put underneath Jesus' feet. And that's why when Jesus is resurrected and we read in Romans the command from Paul that says, Do not repay evil for evil, for vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And the way that the Lord takes out his vengeance is through the cross. It's through the cross, and it's through the coming judgment. And we trust that our God is just. They just put all darkness underneath his feet. And so our prayer is, God, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And my invitation is for us to truly come to the cross. Wherever it is that you have experienced abandonment, wherever you've experienced rejection, wherever you've experienced isolation, wherever you've experienced senseless loss, know that you have a God who has come and who has leveled with you and who has experienced those things with you and beside you and knows you. And I want you to know this morning that he sees you and that he wants nothing more than for you to come to him and to bring those hurts, hang-ups, and addictions to him and allow him to heal you because he is the God who sees. 
He is the God who sees. And so that's what I want us to do this morning, is I want us to, as we worship, I want us to be able to take some time and to go to the God who sees and just cry out to him in our own personal hurts and frustrations. But what I also want us to do is I think it's important that we come together as a body and that we practice this kind of like vulnerability, this seeing one another, and also just crying out to God for Puerto Rico, for Vegas, for Houston, for Mississippi and Louisiana, for Keith, for John, and for whatever hurts and things that you guys have going on in your life because we need to lift them up and we need to be together in this because it's through us, the church, that is the body of Christ that, we are going, that God is going to use for us to be able to experience God seeing us. I think very rarely do we have a moment that's quite like Hagar's where God just kind of like whacks us over the head and asks, hey, where have you been? Where are you going? I've got these things for you. I believe that our God does speak, but I think God often speaks loudest through his people and through his body that is the church. And so as we think about going forward into this week, I also want us to think is, is who is God calling you to see this week? Who is God going to bring in front of your path? Maybe you don't know, but maybe we need to walk with kind of like an erased awareness of like, God, show me what you want me to see this week so that I can go and see someone for you. So that someone can experience God in a way where we participate on God's behalf and they say, whoa, I don't know much about that God, but I think that that God is the God who sees. I think that's the God who sees me in my trial and in my hurt and in my isolation and in my exhaustion. And so that's kind of the application pieces. One, come to the cross in the most real and non-cliche way possible and level with God, knowing that he is leveled with you and that he doesn't leave us there at the cross, but he lifts us up and he encourages us and he empowers us and he heals us to walk a new life with him. And then two, to go out seeing so that people can say, I think that God just spoke to me through that person. And I think that our God is a God who sees me in my trials.